0: Jesus says, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Sounds like fun. I hear the voice of my mother in my head, learn to be servant of all. I learn how to be servant of all every time my kids come home with bags of dirty laundry for me to do. Jesus' dictum concerning the path of downward mobility may not ring every one of our bells, It may sound a little uncomfortable, in fact, in a culture that is so deeply impacted by the continuing effects of the Atlantic slave trade. Slavery is a pretty tricky image for Americans to valorize. Slavery has been called America's original sin, Some would argue that we have yet to fully repent and deal with this deep stain on our national life. So to hear, in the context of a very white congregation, Jesus urging his followers into what sounds like a life of voluntary bondage, sounds curious, to say the least, and potentially a little bit problematic. It is worth noting that the way that slavery was practiced in the first century looked a little bit different than it did in the 16th and 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. In the Roman Empire, slavery was typically the result of either political conquest or economic destitution. It was a, it was a miserable life, don't get me wrong. You became somebody else's property, you were subject to all kinds of violence and exploitation. But Slavery in the Roman Empire was designed to be a temporary state. Slaves could earn their freedom, and once they were released from bondage by a magistrate through a process that was actually called ransoming, they were restored to full citizenship in the Roman Empire. And that seems to be the process that Jesus is talking about in this passage when he describes his own life of service as ransom. For many. Subsequent generations of Christian theologians have imported a lot of ideas into that term, ransom. They've crafted these elaborate theological systems of retribution where only Jesus' holy blood can satisfy God's implacable wrath, and some of us were taught to think of ransom as the price that Jesus had to pay in order to satisfy God's judgment and save us from our sins. But that doesn't actually seem to be what Jesus is talking about in this passage anyway. There's no mention here of God's implacable wrath or humans' sinfulness, the fact that Jesus' suffering is somehow going to pay somebody back for something because he has a really deep wallet. In the ancient world, ransom was not actually thought of so much as the price you pay for something. Ransom was thought of as the process you underwent in order to be set free. It was a legal process, actually. So, a better way to translate this line might be the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a process of liberation to free enslaved people. In other words, this passage really is all about slavery. It's about the, the stark reality of suffering and injustice that people in his time knew, the lives of billions of people throughout history who have been subjugated and repressed and forced into Impossible situations, not of their own choosing. Those who have been maligned and condemned by virtue of the color of their skin, by virtue of their gender, their economic status, their sexual orientation, you name it. Slavery is alive and well in our world. It was alive and well in Jesus' world. And Jesus identifies himself as the liberating slave, the one who comes to free people who are suffering under a yoke of oppression however and whenever that yoke finds them. So while most of us sitting in this room will not likely experience chattel slavery, as many of Jesus' first followers did, and I think that means we have to be really careful about how we apply these words to our situations, nevertheless, I want to suggest to you that suffering, which is what Jesus is talking about here, suffering is universal. And that the practices that Jesus is outlining in this passage, what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to achieve greatness in the kingdom of God, I want to suggest that those practices are not just central to what it means to be a Christian. They are the means of liberation from whatever suffering we may find ourselves experiencing this morning. Because we are human beings. We each suffer in our own way every day in great and dramatic ways sometimes and for many of us in ways that are practically invisible to the naked eye. One of the, one of the weirder joys of my job is that every so often I get to look out over a room like this, these beautiful scrubbed Sunday morning faces. And I know that some of you are holding a lot right now. I know what some of that stuff is. Having done this job now for over a decade, I have this weird privilege of seeing just how close to the surface pain and heartbreak sometimes lie in even the most outwardly privileged and blessed lives. None of us shuffle off this mortal coil without some kind of heartbreak getting there. That seems to be the thing that makes us human. So my question is not so much, why does God let bad things happen? That is an entirely fair question. It is worth wrestling with. But the question that interests me this morning is what meaning can we make of the suffering that we inevitably endure in this life? How do we get through it with our spirits and our sanity intact? What kind of, what kind of person do we want to be on the other side? Or maybe not on the other side, maybe in the midst of the most profound suffering that life can throw our way? Because there's no inherent meaning to suffering, right? Not according to the Bible. God does not cause suffering. There are some Outlying verses, like that horrible one we heard from Isaiah, where it was the will of the Lord to crush the suffering servant with pain, seems to imply otherwise. And, I mean, many of you know, right? Especially in Hebrew scripture, the all-loving and all-merciful God of creation sometimes has a pretty nasty dark side. So that's there. But the question before us this morning is not why do bad things happen to good people, but given the reality that bad things do happen to good people, we see this all around us, all the time, every day, what do we do? What tools does this religion tradition offer us to help us navigate the suffering that we experience, to to frame it in a way that is liberating rather than a way that traps us and ensnares us and maybe even enslaves us in darkness and fear and despair and death? It was almost 75 years ago this weekend. It was October 19th. 1944, a young Viennese psychologist and neurologist was loaded onto a train with hundreds of other Jewish prisoners and sent to Auschwitz concentration camp. He was actually about my age, he was about 38 years old, and sewn into the lining of his jacket was the manuscript that represented the culmination of his life's work, the result of countless clinic hours with individuals struggling with suicide and depression, the great articulation of his central thesis, this new school of psychology that he developed alongside Freud and Adler, the so-called third Viennese school of psychotherapy. The manuscript meant everything to him, and he hoped that if he kept it on his body, even if he didn't survive, and he was pretty sure he would not, even if he didn't survive the camp, he hoped that his work would live on. So almost immediately after arrival, the prisoners were stripped and shaved, head to toe, their few possessions surrendered, burnt by the Nazis. The treasured manuscript was lost to him almost as soon as it had been hidden. And so over the next six months in the camps, this psychologist attempted to reconstruct his life's work in his mind. He would write little notes on scraps of paper he managed to squirrel away, clinging desperately to this meager line of, to his professional and, and personal identity, amid the horrors of the Nazi death camps. Upon liberation, he went back to Vienna. This time, there was no one there to greet him. His mother and his brother had been gassed. His wife had starved to death at Bergen-Belsen. And so now, he wondered, what is the point? What is the point of life? His friends, his family, his profession, his life's work, everything had been stripped from him. And I decided, he wrote, not to commit suicide, at least not until I had reconstructed my book. And he reconstructed that first book, and the colleagues that read it asked him to write another. This is not the book you need to write, they said. You need to write about your experience in the camps. So over nine feverish days in 1945, six months after he'd been liberated, sobbing in an empty room gutted by bombs, Viktor Frankl wrote the book that the Library of Congress has called one of the ten most influential books in American history, a worldwide bestseller. Its German title is Trotzdem Ja zum Leben sagen, Nevertheless, Say Yes to Life. We know it by its more familiar English title, Man's Search for Meaning, and Viktor Frankl's manifesto takes as its central thesis the idea that the will to make meaning out of suffering is the primal urge that sustains human existence on Earth. and He suggests that there are three primary ways by which he and his fellow prisoners managed to survive with their humanity intact in the most inhumane of circumstances. Three ways by which human beings make meaning out of suffering. Some of us find meaning in work, in creativity, in accomplishing something beautiful, having something to live for. Others find meaning in in relationships, the sanctification of love, someone to live for. But when both of those sources of meaning are removed from us, when everything has been taken away from a human being, Frankl discovered that there remained yet a third path to meaning. It's the darkest of the three. It's the one with the greatest potential of being misunderstood or even abused. But for Frankl, the will to meaning found its most profound manifestation in the attitude we choose to take in the face of unavoidable suffering. He wrote, Everything can be taken from a man except one thing. It is the last of the human freedoms, which is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. And Frankl suggested that that choice, the will to make meaning, saying yes to life in spite of everything, That was the path by which suffering could potentially be redeemed. And Frankl is very quick to remind the reader, right? There is no inherent meaning in that kind of suffering. God did not cause the Holocaust so that Viktor Frankl could write a book about it to believe that would be horrific. God does not send us cancer diagnoses in order to teach us dependence. God does not make us suffer in order to teach us obedience. Suffering is just the reality of life. And when we face it honestly, we are left with this choice, right? Either to to give in to the meaninglessness and the randomness, the utter indifference of a cruel universe, or to cling to this last shred of human spirit left to us and make a choice. We cannot choose our circumstances. We can choose how we're going to respond. In Jesus' framework, faced with the reality of of his death, a particularly gruesome one at the hands of the political authorities of his day, the choice was very simple, right? My life, he decides, will be ransom for many. My life will be the embodied demonstration of how to be set free. My life will be given over to showing this profound path of suffering love, the kind of love that is willing to sit at the feet of the one who would betray him on the night before his death, the kind of love that refuses to look away from darkness and despair, refuses to settle for the easy path of advice giving and cheery prescriptions about looking on the bright side of life, and instead embraces the suffering one with deep compassion, saying, I too, right? I, I know suffering too. For Jesus, that's what it means to be servant of all. That's a phrase that sounds starchy and pious, right? Live your life in service to other people. Go out and start a soup kitchen or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with soup kitchens. I don't, I don't mean to demean soup kitchens. But God, Jesus is not talking about solving all the world's problems, right? This is not a liberal manifesto for human progress. This is a darker and, I think, a more personal path which is the choice in the midst of the most profound suffering to choose to encounter somebody else's suffering rather than just focusing on my own. That's a weird choice to make. right? That's some, that's some complicated arithmetic. When I feel miserable, I push people away like crazy. right? I don't want anybody near me. I want to be left alone. I want to preserve some scrap of independence. At least if I feel this badly, I can save everybody else from my misery. But Jesus' logic By Jesus' logic, that isolation instinct is precisely the wrong way to go about it. By his logic, the path towards redeeming suffering is actually seeking to connect more deeply with other people, not to try to fix them, not to try to solve their problems, not to try to cheer them up. The path of the servant is the path of simply learning how to be with suffering people. There's a Buddhist teacher, Pima Chodron, who teaches a a breath meditation, a practice around this pattern. It's called Tonglen. Maybe you know of it. In most breath practices, right, you you breathe out all the stuff you want to get rid of, and you breathe in all the good stuff that you want to have, right? And we sort of engage that practice. Tonglen counterintuitively reverses that practice. You breathe in all the stuff that you are afraid of all the stuff you want to avoid, the sadness, the anger, the suffering, whatever, you breathe out all of the stuff that typically we cling to, happiness, good health, whatever. We breathe in pain, we breathe out spaciousness. We breathe in fear, we breathe out courage and peace, we breathe in loss, we breathe out gain. Pema Chodron calls this an exceedingly counter-habitual practice. It helps us overcome our fear of suffering, and she suggests it helps us to tap into the compassion that is inherent in each one of us. It's a way, it's a, a method, a practice, if you like, of being with our own suffering and the suffering of other people, people we know, people we don't know, the suffering of a suffering world, in a way that partners with Jesus in this incredible act of ransom, this act of setting ourselves free, helping other people set themselves free from the power of death and despair, this is actually what the Gospels are all about. This is what it means to be servant of all, to liberate other people from suffering so that we ourselves might experience God's liberation from our own suffering. I mean, there's no, there's no blood price in this conception of ransom, right? There's just love. There's just the, the deepest kind of suffering love that sets aside everything we thought we knew about how to get ahead and how to succeed and how to be great in the eyes of the world and embraces instead the radical simplicity of Frankl's simple choice to make meaning in a place where meaning seems to be absent, maybe even especially in the places where meaning seems to be absent. And that choice starts very simply. It starts with a breath, right? A breath in. And there it is, the hurt, the pain, the darkness, the despair, the fear, the anguish. And then a breath out, spaciousness, openness, light, joy, mercy, peace, kindness. And gradually, breath by breath, moment by moment, We find ourselves closer and closer to the beating heart of a compassionate God. This is the practice which, if we're ready for it, can lead us into the heart of Jesus.